fell for the clickbait. I, I fell for clickbait, and uh, I recently watched uh, Catholic apolo- Roman Catholic apologist Matt Frad posted a, uh, a, a small snippet from a, from a long interview he had with a Catholic apologist by the name of Patrick Madrid. And he, anyway, he took this little snippet and he put it on YouTube, and it was ti- it's titled, What He Wrote on a Denny's Napkin Led to a Conversion with Patrick Madrid. Now, I, I know what Patrick Madrid wrote on the Denny's Napkin. I've been following his debates with James White, so I've, I've heard this many times before. But the reason I clicked on it, though, is because the, the cover photo of the YouTube video said Calvinists at a Denny's. I, 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 oh, I'm interested, you know, Roman Catholic, Calvinist, that's, that's kind of what I enjoy listening to. So I clicked on it, and unfortunately the video had nothing to do with Calvinism, or Calvinists really at all. The story involves Calvinists, but why that was even thrown in there, I don't understand. I decided, I think this would still be a helpful teaching tool to respond to this. So even though it has nothing to do with Calvinism, it's actually, uh, has what it has to do with is the Protestant doctrine of perspicuity, which is uh, how we th- how clear we think the Bible is. Is the Bible clear that, generally speaking, uh, readers can understand it? Or is the Bible not clear enough that we have to have an infallible interpreter who is perspicuous, who is clear, unlike the Bible, to tell us what the Bible means? The, the differences between Protestants and Catholics on Scripture is perspicuity and sufficiency. And this is specifically on this on the perspicuity. Is the Bible clear? And so we're going to listen to Matt Frad and uh, Patrick Madrid talk about it. And then I want to, I'm going to comment on a lot of their comments that lead up to this famous Denny's napkin thing. But the bulk of why I made this video, I want us to focus on the napkin thing. So let's start at the very, not the very beginning. Leading up to this was kind of a discussion on church history and the role that church history should play. And they're going to bring that up again. I'll have some comments on that, but I want to really focus this on the perspicuity of Scripture. Yeah, I, I find myself so struck. Like, I just did a debate with a Protestant apologist by the name of Cameron De Batuzzi, excellent, awesome young guy, runs a YouTube channel. And we debated the Eucharist. And I did a deep dive into Scripture and tradition on this point. And I, I pointed out the fact that it's not till, you know, the 11th century with Berengarius of Tours, and then you've got Wycliffe, and then you've got some people, you know, starting to deny it. But even Martin Luther wouldn't take the symbolic view. And and I, I said, doesn't it bother you? <laughs> like, for the first thousand years of church history, nobody had heard of your belief? And he's like, no. I'm like, well, it bloody well should. Uh, <laughs> That's right. So let me just briefly, I'm not going to do a big thing on the Eucharist transubstantiation there is no doubt, no doubt, that to deny sim- the mere symbolism, but to believe there's something more happening than symbolism, is a very ancient primitive belief. There's no doubt about it. But uh, I think this is what happens with these with debates with Roman Catholics a lot, is I think that both sides have a tendency to want to simplify history, but if I'm being honest, I think Rome ha- ha- does that more often, because they have to. Uh, at the end of the day, for a Baptist or a Presbyterian or any or Lutheran to to deny a doctrine that's present very very early on in history or that's very prominent in history, it might seem arrogant, it might seem foolish, but it isn't inconsistent with the worldview itself. But in Roman Catholicism, it is. So they have much more of a pressure to make the early church be something that it's not. And so here's my problem with this quick saying. I don't know what all he said in that debate. I would have watched it, but you have to pay for it. This idea that there's two views on the Eucharist and one of them has been 
the unanimous consent of the church for over a thousand years, and then this one Protestant one popped up in the sixteenth, in the early, you know, sixteenth, fifteenth century. It, it's just not the case. Now, am I arguing that there that the opposite is true? That everyone believed the Protestant view until Roman Catholics eventually? No, no. But I think that there is a variety of viewpoints on the Eucharist, which just the elements we use at communion or what Roman Catholics call the mass. I think there's a variety of viewpoints and even Roman Catholicism itself, even the Roman Catholic viewpoint admits that there's been development on this doctrine. So even Matt Frad doesn't believe that his belief can be traced to the first, second or third century. He would argue the core of his belief can be traced to those centuries. He would argue that the Protestant understanding, whichever form it takes, cannot be traced to those. But what he believes about the Eucharist is not 2,000 years old. It's, it's just not, unless you can prove it from Scripture. It's not. Uh, things have developed, and in, in, in Roman Catholics are usually very, they don't find this problematic with their system. So, uh, you know, the, the analogy is often used that the seeds were planted, and then we've kind of flowered and bloomed it. The Roman Catholic understanding is not found in the first three centuries of the church. Important elements of it are, you can find people who very clearly seem to be speaking of, um, of the elements being literally the body and blood of Christ. But again, that doesn't prove transubstantiation, Roman Catholicism. Uh, like I said, that, that isn't a key element, a key component of it. But there's more to Roman Catholic Mass than that. Uh, and even then, though, with that, I would argue that we have evidence of people not believing that. For example, I recently wrote a blog. I'll try to remember to link it below. On uh, Trent Horn made a claim that the Didache, which is an extremely primitive document, teaches that the, 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 the Eucharist was a sacrifice. And uh, I argue it does not. It is possible it does. But I, I own it. It's on my shelf. I, I've read it multiple times. Um, the Didache has an entire section dedicated to the Eucharist. What it is and the prayers you're supposed to pray before you partake of it. And nowhere in that section does it describe it as being literally the body and blood of Christ. Nowhere does it describe it as being um, a sacrifice. Nowhere. And you will actually find it being spoken of, being spoken of in spiritual terms, using that wet word literally, spiritual, spiritual. The only time the word sacrifice comes up is at the end of the document when the Eucharist is in the paragraph, but what's... Uh, under focus is the entire church assembly, the entire church service and the elements of the church, the, the Eucharist being one of them, are described with this sacrificial language. And so what's clearly happening in the Didache, in my opinion, is that the entire church service is being spoken of as our sacrifice. And that, oh, you say, oh, that sounds so weird, but it's not. Paul, this is New Testament language. You read through Paul and he talks about offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. The book of Hebrews says, give a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. So uh, I would argue that the Didache is evidence against the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation. But I, I would argue, but I would also argue that it's very possible that Christians were not entirely unified on this in the first three centuries. So 
I've already said too much more than I wanted to say on this, but I, I just I don't think this simplistic. There was one view for a thousand for over a thousand years, and then the reformers came and changed it. That's just not history. That's not historical. That's just not true. There's there's this distinction between well, no, I don't need that. I just have the scripture. It's like well, of course you have the scripture. I have the scripture. We both know the, Mormons the scripture. Have scripture. The Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses have scripture. Yeah, so the Mormons have scripture and the Jehovah's Witnesses have scripture. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses really, you can't say they have scripture because they have, even the Roman Catholic would agree, they have gutted and manipulated and distorted the scripture that I, I, I find it offensive that you would even call that scripture. Jehovah's Witness Bible is not a Bible, right? It's not like we're, when we, when we talk about the New World Translation, we're not talking about, it's not like comparing the NIV to the NASB or the King James to the ESV. It's not. It's it's more than just translational differences. I mean, they have gutted the Greek. They have manipulated and distorted, and even Roman Catholics would admit that. So no, the Jehovah's Witnesses do not have scripture. But let's just say they do. Yeah, they have scripture, and the Mormons have scripture. Here's where that fails. What do those groups also have? External revelation, or a better way of saying it, external infallible authorities. Yes, they have scripture, but they also have infallible churches telling them how to read scripture. So are Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they, they're more consistent with Roman Catholic methodology than with Protestant methodology. In other words, it's comparing apples to oranges to say, well, the Protestant can interpret the Bible one way, but so can the Mormon. But that's not the same scenario you're comparing because the Protestant is trying to interpret the Bible according to his principles of interpretation, while the Mormon is interpreting the Bible how his infallible authority tells him to, just like the Roman Catholic. So uh, I, I, I don't see how, how throwing that in is embarrassing to, to the perspicuity of Scripture. I think, if anything, it's a little bit embarrassing to the groups who think we need more than the Scripture. Yeah. So yeah, then, in itself, it doesn't it doesn't resolve anything to say. I mean, I mean, you know, people would uh, would say, well, if I say as a Catholic, well, the Bible says X, they'd say, well, you're misinterpreting the Bible. Now, it remains to be seen whether or not one is misinterpreting the Bible. But the only way you can know that is if you appeal to how the earliest Christians understood the Bible. Says who? Says who? Notice, I would argue what he just said is not even actually consistent with Roman Catholicism. Because Roman Catholicism does not say the earliest Christians are the purest understanding of Scripture, the infallible understanding of Scripture. Uh, Roman Catholicism says, in terms of what we take from church history, we really only take the unanimous consent of the fathers. But we recognize that the early church was fallible, and the early church could be mistaken, and early Christians could be mistaken, and even individual fathers could be mistaken. So where does this notion come from? And, and notice how inconsistent it is. So I'm a fallible person, and I read my Bible, and I say it says X. And then Patrick Madrid, he reads his Bible, and he says, no, it says Y. And what's his response? How do we determine this? Well, what did the earliest Christians believe? Were they, were they infallible? Well, aren't they prone to the same mistakes that I am? Otherwise, you're simply saying, I am the arbiter of how to understand Scripture, and if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's solipsistic, it's, it's subjective. There is no answer for the subjective interpreter. He, he's saying that, that, that to rely on the Scripture by yourself, even though that's not quite our position, but let's even just go with the straw man, is solipsistic. Well, okay, so who do we bring in? Well, the church magisterium. 
Well, I have to interpret the church magisterium. That's solipsistic. Well, there's the tradition. I have to interpret the tradition. That's solipsistic. Better yet, I have to make the personal decision as to which church to believe. Mormons have an infallible church. Why shouldn't I listen to them? Jehovah's Witnesses have an infallible church. Why shouldn't I listen to them? So I have to make the solipsistic, subjective decision that Rome is true. How do I go about making that decision? They would say, well, read the church fathers. They ain't Protestants. Oh, so you trust my solipsistic, subjective interpretation of the church fathers, but you don't trust it when it comes to the Bible. So you see how circular it is? You can't trust your solipsistic, subjective approach to scripture. So use that approach to read the church fathers to convince you to become Catholic. Well, why can't I use that approach to read scripture? And here's the problem. If you do use that approach to read the church fathers and you say, you know what? I don't think the church fathers actually uh, believed about Mary what you say about Mary. I don't think that the church fathers actually believe about the Eucharist what you say about the Eucharist. You guess what they would tell you? Well, the church gets to tell us what the church fathers mean. So it doesn't even matter. At the end of the day, everything you believe is ultimately going to be something you have to subjectively interpret and make sense of. And if it doesn't make sense, you're going to reject it. Roman Catholicism does not fix that. Otherwise, the whole world would be Catholic. Why isn't every single person a Roman Catholic? Because some people examine the claims, doesn't make sense, and they don't believe it. So a Roman Catholic authority does not come in and convince you of things. It merely sets the bounds for this particular religion, and you still have to subjectively understand it, subjectively make sense of it, subjectively decide whether it's true or not. But the subjective interpreter, that, that problem doesn't go away by just adding more and more things to interpret. Here's the Bible. Well, you can't interpret that all by yourself. So here's the Catholic, Roman Catholic Catechism, uh, the Canons of the Council of Trent, uh, Vatican I, Vatican II, uh, the Nicene Creed. We just stack thousands and thousands of pages and say, you need to interpret all of these in order to interpret your Bible. All the papal encyclicals, all the papal decrees, it's just thousands and thousands of more things to interpret. How does that make the problem of the subjective interpreter go away? It doesn't. Example of how yes. I... Okay, I was having a conference, actually I was doing a speaking event in San Diego many years ago, and I was speaking about Mary, and uh, after the event was over, there were two gentlemen who came up to me, both Calvinists, they identified... See, there's a, that's where he throws it in, that these guys were Calvinists doesn't matter. All that matters is that they weren't Roman Catholic, or that they were Protestants. I think it's because Calvinists are typically the only ones who go after Rome. I think that's why that Rome loves to throw it in. For example, he mentioned earlier his debate with Cameron Bertuzzi. Cameron Bertuzzi is a non-Calvinistic uh, Protestant apologist online, and he's buddy-buddies with Rome. He's very open to their beliefs. He doesn't think it's false. It's Calvinists who, ever since the time of the Reformation, have been the most firm in standing against Roman Catholic theology, so they have to kind of throw that in there, because they're not so much going after Protestants, they're going after Reformed Protestants, because they know if they can get that dam to break, the rest is easy. So in a certain sense, Calvinists should almost take this as a compliment, but the fact that this made it in there and then was used as clickbait is really telling because this has nothing to do with Calvinism. So uh, these guys were Calvinists. Okay. <laughs> themselves as being there to kind of critique my talk. Okay, that's fine. And they said, almost everything you said here tonight about Mary is wrong, and we'd like to show you why. And I said, okay. So uh, they asked if we... By the way, again, I'm not going to make this about Mary, but you show me one person in the first three centuries of the church who believed in the bodily assumption. 
The Perpetual Virginity is pretty ancient. That one has more pedigree, historical pedigree. But uh, the the uh, Immaculate Conception, the uh, Bodily Assumption. What happened to all of Matt Frad's? Uh, doesn't it bother you that no one in the other church believed this? Does it does it bother Matt Frad that nobody in the early church believed that Mary bodily assumed into heaven as Christ did? No, nobody believed that in the early church. Nobody doesn't bother him. We go to uh, get a cup of coffee at Denny's, which we did. I don't know why I was drinking coffee at ten o'clock at night, but and at Denny's. And a de- well, Denny's, you know, hey, that was not so bad. Um, sure. But anyway, so there we were. So the two, these two Calvinist fellows on one side of the table, I'm on the other side. Yeah, two, two Calvinist fellows, yeah. We have our Bibles out. And you may have heard me use this story before. I have It was one of these moments where, man, I tell you, a light bulb went on. So they, they said, well, you're teaching things that are not in the Bible about Mary. And I said, what, for example? They gave me an example. So I opened my Bible and I started offering some scripture in support of that Marian teaching. Well, then it switched from you're teaching things that are not in the Bible to you're misinterpreting what's in the Bible. Mm. And I said, no, I'm not. You are. By the way, that's that's not a switch. That's not a switch. That's not moving the goalposts. Uh, it's it's explaining how you're missing the Bible. Right. But if, if you're misinterpreting things about the Bible, then it would be true that you're teaching things that are not in the Bible. So uh, that wasn't a switch on their part. <laughs> and they said, no, you're misinterpreting. I said, no, I'm not. You are. And just for effect, I was just putting it back on them because the very fact that they said I was misinterpreting it didn't mean I was misinterpreting it, nor yes. vice versa. So, Oh, yes, that's so bright. I really don't think that that's what they thought. And I don't think that just simply saying, no, you're misinterpreting it, no, you're misinterpreting it, actually proves the point. Again, again, we all recognize that the subjective interpreter is impossible to get around. We all recognize that at the end of the day, people, anyone can read the Bible however they want, no matter how nonsensical it is. So, uh, that, that, again, that's not an argument against the perspicuity of Scripture. Let us look at the temptation of Jesus for a second. Uh, this is from Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. He answered them, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan comes up and... Uh, you know, tells Jesus to do something. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus says, no, that's against scripture. That's, I've read the Bible. I understand this verse. And what you're telling me is inconsistent with that verse. So we continue, verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And this is Satan now quoting scripture. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up like you, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So this is amazing. What does Satan do? Satan says, okay, Jesus, if you're so um, concerned with the Bible and being consistent with Scripture, then why don't you jump off this building? Because I've read the Bible too, and the Bible says that God, his angels will protect you. Now, guess what? Jesus doesn't believe that the devil has interpreted this correctly or at, at, at best has not applied the teaching of this correctly. The devil has just presented a Bible verse to Jesus and says, here's what it means. And it's wrong. It's a wrong interpretation. So what does Jesus do? Does Jesus say, oh gosh, 
Well, the devil has his interpretation. I have my interpretation. Where's the Pope? Where's the Vicar of Christ? Where's the Church Magisterium? I, you know, we can't just settle. It can't just be his interpretation versus my interpretation. We need a third interpretation to arbitrate between us. No, what does Jesus do? He just keeps quoting scripture. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So how did Jesus prove that the devil was misinterpreting scripture? By showing him what? That his interpretation contradicts scripture. In a different place, Jesus applied what we call the analogy of faith. That scripture interprets scripture. Jesus essentially told the devil, no, 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 how you're interpreting that doesn't make sense. Why? Because it would contradict this other scripture, which tells me I'm not allowed to test God. So here's the point. Notice the presuppositions of Jesus. If Jesus believed that subjective interpretation was solipsistic and unpragmatic, his answer makes no sense. Because here's some of the things we could say. We could say, number one, Jesus, Satan misinterpreted scripture in chapter, in verse six. So why would you expect him to interpret it correctly when you quote it in verse seven? And number two, you know, we could say exactly what Patrick Madrid said. So how are we supposed to know whose, whose interpretation is right? Satan has his, Jesus. But Jesus is obviously operating under the presupposition that God's word is perspicuous that I can read it and understand it, and that if someone comes to me and they have falsely read it or falsely misunderstood it, I don't need to go outside of Scripture to correct that. I can stay in Scripture. Scripture can correct itself. Well, correct our interpretation of it. Jesus, by the way, finishes it off one more time again. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The devil left and behold, angels came ministering to him, which is interesting given what Satan quoted. But what's the point? Jesus was very comfortable believing in the perspicuity of Scripture, using Scripture as a guide for life, and when someone else had a different interpretation of Scripture. He was comfortable not going outside of Scripture to solve the problem, but staying inside of Scripture to solve the problem. So Patrick Madrid does not have the same view of the Bible that Jesus did. Let's just be clear about that. Patrick Madrid thinks that the Scriptures are less perspicuous than Jesus did. It just became this this hour-long uh, struggle in which they kept saying, nope, that's, that you're, that's not how to understand it. And I said, well, there are reasons to understand it that way. And I could cite St. Augustine or you know, some earlier figure who held that view. But he kept coming back to, they just said, that's the wrong interpretation. So I took out my pen <clears throat> out of my pocket. I was at my wit's end, Matt. I didn't know what else to do. So on the napkin on the table in front of me, I jotted down six words. I jotted down, I never said you stole money. And I turned it around in front of the two fellows, one of whom was an ex-Catholic, by the way. And I said, now, you, you just saw me write this sentence in your presence in our common language. Do you understand what it means? And they looked at it. I never said you stole money. Yeah, I understand it. And I said, are you sure you understand what I mean by that? And they said, of course, what do you, you know, what's the big deal? And then for effect, I said a third time, now, just to be sure, you know exactly what I meant by this, right? And they said, yes, they were exasperated with me. So then I said, all right, did I mean, 
I never said you stole money, implying that maybe Matt Frad said it, but I didn't say it. Or did I mean I never said you stole money? I thought it, but I never said it. Or did I mean I never said you stole money? Could have been somebody else. Or did I mean I never said you stole money? Maybe you accidentally lit it on fire. Yeah. Or did I mean I never said you stole money? You know, maybe it was something else. Maybe you were surfing the Internet on company time and stealing time from your employer. I didn't say you stole money. So I asked them again. I said, now, which of these five different meanings did I intend by this six word sentence written on a napkin in your presence in our common language? And they kind of looked at each other and they looked at me and kind of sheepishly. They said, all right, well, I guess, you know, you got us on that one. We don't know for sure what you meant. Yeah. So then I held up my Bible and I said, now, come on, guys, are you trying to tell me that you you're guaranteed to know with certainty the meaning of all of these different scriptures in the Bible written by different authors at different times in different languages for different audiences for different purposes and you somehow automatically know the correct interpretation of all of this and you can't tell me what I wrote on a napkin? Six words? Come on. All right. So many problems with this. I don't even know where to begin, but let's work backward. Number one, uh, Roman Catholicism has defined... By the way, I don't even think there's agreement as to how many scriptures have been infallibly defined by Rome. But I've, I've heard... I've heard... I've seen Roman Catholics fight over that. But I've, I've never heard more than seven. So, Patrick Madrid, he holds up a Bible and he says, you know, there's tons of different authors, tons of words, tons of settings, tons of context. Like, how do you know you even understand any of this? So what does he offer you in Rome? They can, they can, they can interpret seven verses from here. <laughs> so uh, apparently they're not very helpful, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of verses in here that... Rome hasn't given me infallible uh, guidance on. And if I'm so, if my worldview is so solipsistic and subjective, how does this not lead to, by the way, believing that the Bible is, it has no perspicuity level? You see, because I've never heard a Roman Catholic say it's completely unintelligible. You can, you can understand it, but just again, not enough to not need the church. But by his logic, I don't understand a word of this. I can't understand a single word of this. Here, here's the, the main issue, though, that I think went wrong with this example of his. So we've got this phrase that he used. I, I never said you stole money. And he made the point. Like, there are tones and implications that the speaker could make without any additional words that would change the whole meaning of this verse, of this sentence. Right? What's being emphasized here? The I, the said, the you, the stole, or the money. And so he said, right, if you can't even understand this one verse, how can you understand the Bible? Well, here's the problem. The Bible is not just a bunch of sentences put into a book. The Bible is filled with letters and stories. It's filled with books that had authors who were writing out thoughts. So the, you know what's the main argue, argue, problem with this? Is the Bible is not one sentence. The Bible is not one sentence. So here's what's so ironic. He did exactly what we claim the Bible could do. So he wrote one sentence on a napkin and he asked them, do you know what I mean? And they had to admit like, yeah, if all I have is this one sentence. I, I don't know 100% what this means. By the way, even just the one sentence though, they, they still know quite a bit. They can still, I mean, they still are pretty close, but 
uh, no, there's some ambiguity here that we can't solve. So what did he do? He provided all of these additional contexts that would help them define that. But guess what? That's what you have in the Bible. <laughs> you have the context, right? So, so here's what I'm doing. Uh, you know, take this one sentence. I never said you stole money. Okay, yeah. Okay, we get this. So, you know, I can't understand this. But what if, what if it says this? It was Bob who accused you of theft. I never said you stole money. We can, now, now we know which of his scenarios is being meant here. What if it said this? I never said you stole money, although I have implied it. So we know by, by this, what's, what's the context of the, of the verse now? Well, they didn't say you stole money, but you did imply it. So what's emphasis? I never said you stole money, although I may have implied it. What if it says this? I told the police that Bob stole the cash. I never said you stole money. Which, which word should we emphasize? Well, it's clear. I told the police that Bob stole the cash. I never said you stole money, right? I said Bob stole money, not you stole money. What about this? I told them you borrowed the cash with the intentions of paying it back. I never said you stole money. So what word should be emphasized now? Well, what's the context? Clearly, what's going on here? Someone told somebody else that you borrowed the money, but you were going to pay it back. And what is, that's not theft. That's not technically theft, or at least this, the speaker doesn't think it is. So what do we emphasize? Stole. I never said you stole money. I said you borrowed money, right? What about this? I told them you took my car keys. I never said you stole money. What word is emphasized there? Money, right? You didn't steal money. You stole car keys. I never said you stole money. So in, in other words, all you need is one sentence to know what the sentence that he wrote on that napkin said. And guess what? Every single book in the Bible is not only longer than one sentence, it's longer than two sentences. So I think the question for Patrick Madrid is this. Why is it that he thinks he's capable of providing enough context to his napkin to, ma uh, to make it clear that the Holy Spirit and the biblical authors were incapable of making in their letters? Why was Paul incapable of providing enough context to make Romans perspicuous? Why was John, when John, said, when John writes, what, is, what does John say in uh, John chapter 20? John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Does Patrick M Madrid believe this about the book of John? Does he believe that John was capable of writing a gospel that by itself someone could read the gospel and be saved? Does, does John think his gospel needs an infallible interpreter outside of scripture? No. John wrote the book so, so that someone could read it and know Jesus. So again, how does, how does Patrick Madrid's Denny's experiment fit this? Apparently, Patrick Madrid is perfectly sufficient at saying, I wrote this and let me provide some context to know what I mean. But John can't do that, even though John said that's what he was trying to do. So what's the problem with the Denny's note? One sentence doesn't have a context. So I have no problem admitting, yeah, this one sentence all by itself, I don't know what that means. No problem admitting that. What is his solution? How is it that we can know what that one sentence means? Again, 
You have to stack books on books on books. Councils after councils, decrees after decrees, canons after canons, encyclicals after encyclicals. They have thousands of pages of literature telling you what this book means. So take his problem, one sentence, I never said you stole money. And remember, in your solipsistic worldview, you can't understand that one sentence. And by his logic, what does he deduce? Therefore, you can't understand the thousands of sentences in here. So what else does that mean? You can't understand the hundreds of sentences in Vatican II. You can't understand the hundreds of sentences in Vatican I. You can't understand the sentences in the Council of Nicaea. You can't understand the sentences in the Council of Trent. Onward and onward and onward. All he did was prove by his own logic that you can't understand Roman Catholicism. Because if you can't even interpret one sentence on a Denny's napkin, how can you interpret Vatican I? And you say, well, the church can tell us that. So who? Is the Pope going to call me? No, they tell us that through literature that you have to interpret. And even if they did tell you orally, you have to interpret that. If you can't even interpret one sentence on a Denny's napkin, how are you going to interpret the Pope when he's talking to you? You see, anyone can play this perspicuity game. The Denny's napkin is not a good example. It's a contextless example, but we're not talking about contextless theology. The Bible has context.